0: John 13, 21. After Jesus, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Of course, this is the night where he was with his disciples, um, right before he was betrayed. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, Simon motioned to this disciple and asked, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the festival or give something to the poor, and as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. That's our text. Let's pray. Lord, um, I pray tonight that you would illuminate our hearts um, to see the things that you want to do in this room tonight with uh, the teaching and music and baptisms and all this stuff that's happening tonight, that you would uh, open up our hearts and illuminate us, Lord, illuminate our minds and our hearts so that we could grow in you, follow you, fall more in love with you, um, come in alignment with your will and your way tonight. I ask God that you would anoint me and use me tonight. I I, I need your help in communicating these things. Um, And I, I, I desperately want to live into this teaching as much as I want to teach it. So, Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, The church that I'm a part of in San Francisco, uh, Reality San Francisco, started the exact same day as Bridgetown did, January 10, 2010. And John Mark and I didn't know each other then, but um, like he he explained, but I think like twins separated at birth, we were bound to find each other. Like, our churches were bound to find each other. Our, Our churches are very similar. And as I've been reflecting on ministry these last seven years, I went on sabbatical with my wife for three months, um, and as I was there on sabbatical, and for me reflecting, I'd say the first seven years of ministry in San Francisco for me, I, I had, with all of my capacities, with everything I had, I leaned in. I leaned into teaching, I leaned into leadership, I leaned into the voice that I believe God had given me uh, for the, the time I am, I'm there in the city, I leaned, leaned into leading, I've leaned into the opportunities that were before me, I leaned into community and making a sustainable life in San Francisco, which is super, super insane and hard. I leaned into a lot of things the first seven years. And I think for the most part, uh, the, the message that we get from our culture, especially in areas like Portland and San Francisco, is to lean in. You are told to lean into your careers, lean into networking. During the four-minute meet and greet at our church, all the extroverts network pretty much during the four-minute while all the introverts like go to the bathroom and stuff like, I'm going to leave now. Um, But you just see the buzz that happens in our church, just the the networking that happens. You're taught to network. You're taught to lean into your 10-year plan. You get your 10-year plan planned and executed. Um, you're, taught, you're told to lean into relationships and opportunities, lean into ministry and personal growth and leadership, lean into following Jesus and everything that you've been going through with practices, lean into those things, lean into trying to start a family while leaning into all the other things that you have going on in your lives. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, has a wildly popular book on women in the workplace called Lean In, and the message is to lean in to your career as women because, she says, Men lean into their careers and women shouldn't be afraid of being ambitious. Okay, so I mean, that's awesome, but now everyone's leaning in, right? Men are leaning in, women are leaning in, and it might be really good for the workplace, and I think it's um, uh, important for women's equality in the workplace for sure, but with everyone leaning in, John, the, the writer of John, gives us an enduring and vivid picture of what discipleship to Jesus looks like, and that is leaning back. The, 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 in our text, it was the night of Jesus' betrayal, and Jesus is enjoying uh, the last supper meal with his disciples, giving them what would become the first communion ritual, the first communion meal, like we just celebrated a minute ago. And after, after, the, after dinner, after communion, after Jesus uh, uh, does that, he removes his outer garment And he kneels down to wash the disciples' feet, an act reserved for slaves. And Jesus takes up this place. And after that, imagine having an amazing long meal with many courses of wine mixed into this meal. And then your feet were just washed with warm water. Like how relaxing this is. And they would have been uh, around a table. And the table would have been like uh, like a capital U. And they would have been reclining on the outside of the table so that, that the inside could be done, like the food can be brought to them. And there were no chairs there, so they were, all, they were all leaning. They would be leaning on their left arm or their left elbow since the right hand was used for eating and drinking. And they were there reclining. And Jesus starts to explain that someone in the room is going to betray him. And you thought your, like, Thanksgiving dinner was awkward. Like, this gets really awkward, right? Like, imagine lounging, laying on your side. Your feet are just are clean. I mean, your, your belly is full. And then Jesus starts to say, um, one of you is going to betray me tonight. And the room gets really, really intense. And Judas is sitting there, and Judas is sitting there with hatred brewing in his heart. He's tired of Jesus' teachings, he's tired of Jesus' promises, he's sick of Jesus' way of life even, and he finally agrees to help get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting, he's in the middle of plotting to betray Jesus, And Jesus, of course Jesus, knows it. He knows it. One mystical writer says this about betrayal, betrayal is more than separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confined to a friend, and to turn against that person, to use their confined uh, thoughts or words in order to hurt and defile them to destroy a reputation. Judas betrayed Jesus. He knew Jesus' secrets. He knew Jesus' thoughts. He even knew where Jesus would be that night. And think about this. He knew Jesus would go quietly. He knew Jesus would not put up a fight. And Jesus, during the meal, no longer able to contain his emotion or his anguish, he starts to say, someone in here is going to betray me. Look at what it says in verse 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit, or some of your translations say he was in deep anguish, and he said, he testified, I will tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. It isn't like Jesus is, it's like Jesus isn't emotionally able to hold on to this information anymore. I don't know if you've ever been like this or been this in this place in your own humanity where you have a piece of information that's so emotionally heavy that you can't hold on to that piece of information anymore when you're around people that you love. When you've ever been into a room, and you're around people you love, and you know you have this bit of information, you're like, I can't hold on to this thing anymore, I have to tell you. This is exactly how Jesus, don't think that Jesus was ice cold going into his, his crucifixion. He was not ice cold. He was completely emotional. If you've ever read the the, the, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. You know Jesus was like about to emotionally crack. He was under that much pressure. And here he is in a room with his, his best and closest friends, and one of them is about to betray him. And Jesus is shattered by this idea, and so are the disciples. They're shattered by this revelation. They're stunned. Are you, wait, what's going on? Someone's going to betray you? And maybe not so much, maybe they were shattered not so much by what Jesus said, but maybe how Jesus would have had said it. He would have said it probably trembling, his voice quivering, his words told through tears maybe. And finally, the, well, I think one of the strangest things happens in, um, in the Gospels. Like there's a few things, if you've ever, if you, as you read through the Gospels uh, more and more and more, you will find really quirky things happen that make you laugh or make you go, this is really weird. This is one of them, I still don't understand why this happened. Th- the, all the disciples are there and um, they're like, someone's going to betray you? What? Who is going to betray? Lord. And, you know, um, Peter leans over to John because John's leaning next to Jesus. We'll get there in a second. And uh, Peter's like, hey, John, ask him who it is. <laughs> like, that's strange. And so, John's like, Lord, who is it? And Jesus goes, I'm about to dip this bread in a cup, and I'm going to give it to who it is. And he gives it to Judas. And Judas is like, thank you? Like, and he eats it. <laughs> How, this is so weird, the disciples are like, I don't understand, and Jesus, and, and Jesus is like, go, and he's like, all right, I'll see you later, and then he leaves, like, that's the, that's the scene, I don't, I, that, to call someone out like that is so strange, like, I'm gonna, I'll tell you who it is, is this person, and then, and the disciples are like, what, they still don't get it, it's just a super strange thing, and when Jesus finally leaves the room, he takes the bread, he takes the, 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 bread that Jesus gives him, and Jesus says, whatever you're gonna do, do it quickly, and so he leaves. And then John writes this. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, why does John say it was night? Well, because it was night. Okay? That's the first reason, right? <laughs> it was night. Um, and that's true. It, it was night. But also because John loves to play with light and dark metaphor. He loves doing it. He does it all over the, his gospel of John. does it all over 1 John, if you've ever read his letter, 1 John. Um, He does this from the very beginning of the book. It says this in, in John 1, 4. In him was life, speaking of Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There it is, that light and dark, day and night. John loves playing with these polarities. And so here, when Jesus, who is the light of the world, is about to be betrayed, John says this, and it was night. Why? Because it was night but also because Judas was turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest darkness and most cold place anyone has ever known. Judas was rejecting Jesus' love. And it started by Judas losing trust in Jesus, and then it progressed to opposing Jesus, which we have several accounts of, and it culminated to outright rejection of Jesus' love. It's an outright rejection of the light of the world, and from that point, no light could come in anymore. No light can penetrate his heart, and Judas was in darkness, and in darkness, you make some of the worst decisions humans can ever make, and so he leaves, and it was night, and it was dark, and he was dark, and he was in night, but during this dark scene, we're given another polarity. This is how John loves to write. We're given another contrast to the darkness that Judas was in. He is the—I'm going to leave him here. He's the unnamed disciple. Now, I think we kind of all know this was John, but let's just—we'll Honor the text and say we don't know who this is. How about that? We'll just suspend our judgment for a second. We'll suspend the the fact that we we kind of know that it was John, but he writes it. He he writes it as the unnamed disciple, who we don't know who he is. The way the narrative is told, we just know that it's the disciple whom Jesus loves. So here's the polarity: Judas is betraying the light of the world, and he's literally he's literally stepping into darkness, and and has turned his heart cold towards Jesus, and at the same time, there's a d- disciple whom Jesus loved, who's leaning back on Jesus' chest, absorbing the warmth of his body. This, this is the polarity that John's playing with. There's Judas, who's turning, who's going to the cold night, who's rejecting Jesus, who's betraying Jesus, and then there's this disciple whom he loves, who is leaning back on Jesus who's absorbing the warmth that's coming from fellowship and intimacy with Jesus, who is there in trust and there in comfort. And, there, and the text almost makes it look as if the disciple gets closer to Jesus after he confesses his agony, because it says he's reclining next to him. And then when Jesus, in agony and in anguish, says, someone's going to betray me, he's leaning on Jesus. It's almost as if this disciple feels Jesus' heart breaking and then moves closer to him in love, like you would someone that you love. If you're next to someone you love and you're next to them and you can sense their heart breaking, you're going to lean on that person. You're going to bring them in. You're going to be close to that person. You're going to naturally move toward them. And this disciple whom Jesus loved is moving closer to Jesus as Jesus' heart is breaking. And so we see a polarity here. Judas rejects Jesus' love. And the beloved disciple absorbs Jesus' love. He draws even nearer to it, literally places his body up against Jesus' body. Now, these are extreme, but if you've ever read the writings of John, he loves to, he's like a black and white person. He, he loves to talk about the either, you are either moving away from Jesus or you're moving towards Jesus in love. You're either growing ice cold in your relationship with God maybe on the verge of walking away from God, or you are drawing closer to Jesus in intimacy. For John, this is, this is life. You're either moving closer to Jesus or you're moving away from Jesus. That's it. Now, let's turn to our attention to meditate on the image of this beloved disciple for a second. Let's just think about this for a second. As they're reclining around this table, remember there are no chairs, no just cushions. The disciple is leaning back on Jesus it says that he's on Jesus' chest. Or in some translations, if you rock the Old King James Version, it says that he is on Jesus' bosom. Now, we don't use the word bosom. I'm not trying to bring that word back at all. But he's on his bosom. That's what a lot of translations say. He's leaning on his chest. And when you put your head on someone else's chest, your ear is just above that person's heart. So you're able to hear their heartbeat. Think about that. The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning back on Jesus, his head is on his chest, his ear is right above Christ's heart, able to hear it beat. And with that, we get John's ultimate image for discipleship. For John, this is the ultimate image of what a disciple is. For John, the slide says, a disciple is someone who is leaning back on Jesus hearing his heartbeat and from that perspective, looking out into the world. For John, this is it. This is like the ultimate, the, the climax of his discipleship to Jesus. It's like, and then I was leaning up against his chest, and he leaves that there as the enduring picture of what a disciple is. It's someone who's so close to Jesus that you're leaning back up against him, absorbing their, like, their body heat. When I think about this, this, like, leaning back on Jesus, I can't help but think about um, Moses Comer. Do you guys know Moses, Mo, John, Mark, and Tammy's youngest son? Do you guys know him? He's rocking the cool hair, and he's just sitting right up here. Oh, my gosh. I love this kid so much. Um, this kid loves to cuddle like you would not believe. He loves to cuddle. Oh, when I first started hanging out with Moses and, and the kids, we were, we were vacation together in Kauai. This was a few years, several years ago, four years ago, something like that, five years ago. And... Um, and I, I, they were there before me. We get to Kauai. We get on the beach. My wife and I go there um, most every summer. And uh, we meet the combers there, and they're all in the ocean. So, of course, I'm like, I just got off a foggy San Francisco. I'm going into the water, right? So I go into the water, and Moses is there. I'm throwing all the kids in the waves. We're having fun. And then Moses comes up to me, and he goes, Dave, um, after we're done playing in the ocean, can we go up on the beach and cuddle? <laughs> and I'm like... I mean, I could ask your parents. I mean, I don't know. Like, we, I just, I, this is like the second time I hung out with you. I don't know if that's like a thing. I don't know. I can ask. I can see. I, I just, and this, but this, this, and then, you know, getting to know him, realizing this is like, this is this kid's life. Like, he loves to cuddle. I was over at their house Friday night, and I have no idea he's a ninja as well. He, and somehow, he's, he's in my lap, and I'm cuddling him, and I don't even remember how he got there. And I'm just like, sitting by the fire, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, how did you get here? And then we're playing cards. He's like, can, can we cuddle yet? Is this the time to cuddle? Like this is, when I think of leaning back on someone, I think of Moses. Like I think of like someone that just loves to curl up in there and just get, get super close and intimate. Like and, and intimacy is, is rich there. This is the enduring picture that we get from John. Like what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, all, there, it means all kinds of stuff. We know this. But for John, the enduring picture he wants to leave in our minds and never forget is leaning. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Are you leaning up against Jesus' chest? Are you like there deep in his heart? Do you hear his heartbeat? Are you looking at our chaotic world? Are you reading your newsfeed from a place of my ear is pressed up against Jesus' heart? That my heartbeat is connected to his. Not just my heartbeat. But my like my my blood pressure matches Jesus' blood pressure. I mean I think that's where we have to get to. Like I, I um I, I, I need this. I um at the beginning of my sabbatical, I mean, it's pretty stressful last couple of years. Um and um I went, I got on sabbatical and my heart wouldn't stop like palpitating, like my blood pressure would rise and it would drop and also so I go to my doctor, I think I go, to My doctor, I think my heart is like something's wrong with it, because it's doing this thing and I don't know what's wrong, and he hooks me up on the machines, and he's like, you're fine, you're totally fine, your heart is healthy, and you just need to calm down, like, a little bit, like, relax, and I said, is there, like, a pill for that to relax? (laughs) Could I get a pill, a prescription? He's like, what? No, you're not getting a pill for that. Um, There is no, there's not a pill for that. I'm not giving you, if there was a pill, I wouldn't give you a pill for that. You just need to learn how to, like, and this was, like, the beginning of me learning, like, oh, I need to get to this place again. There is no pill for this. There's only a posture for this. There's only a posture of leaning back on Jesus and my blood pressure matching his blood pressure, my heartbeat matching his heartbeat. Next slide. A disciple is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. Like you're looking at our crazy world and the thum-thum, thum-thum is Jesus' heart. Like we got Jesus' heart for the world literally because we're leaning up against him. This is what God has ultimately taught me this summer after seven really hard, intense years of ministry. And I was, to be honest, I was leaning into, you know, I had to lean into everything that in an endeavor, if you've ever started any sort of endeavor. And I would say even starting a new marriage is a new endeavor, having kids is a new endeavor. If you've ever given yourself to an endeavor, you know it takes all of you, and you lean into all of it. And I have learned, after doing all of that, that in order for me to, see the, to, to to be a disciple of Jesus, I must come close enough to Jesus that I hear His heart. If I'm going to lead my church as a pastor, I must lead it from, I must lead from a place where I am so close to Jesus that I know where Jesus what Jesus' heart, how Jesus' heart is beating. I know, even in ministry, even for me, and I and I know it sounds silly because you're like you're in ministry, like your your whole like life is being close to Jesus. Well, here's the thing: Judas was in Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the twelve. So you can't claim ministry as like, well, this is a shoe-in. You just can't do that. There is something deeper that keeps us connected to Jesus, even in the midst of ministry. All of us, no matter what your vocation is, what your call is, what you do for a living, all of us have. Um, a propensity to, like, pull apart, uh, uh, like, segregate, well, this is work for God, and this is, this is what, and that, and the work for God is the same thing as, like, being close to God, and that's, that's not true. I, I, I learned from me that I have to, that I have to have my ears and my eyes connected, like, locked onto Jesus, because for a while, I had my ears pressed up against my church's needs, And I had my ears pressed up against the city I lived in and its complexity and what I thought it needed and what everyone else I thought needed. But being close to Jesus over the summer, I've come to realize that my church needs a pastor who is at least close enough to Jesus to hear his heart so that I can lead them there if they are not already there themselves. Like, this is where Jesus is. And this is, like, what I want to give my life to. Like, me connected, staying close to Jesus. Jesus. And this is a hard place to live from. See, the disciple's location is also probably intended to tell us something about himself. He's reclining near Jesus' chest, and this is a big deal. This is actually a big deal, I think, theologically, because this is what's going on. If, if you know Greek here, it's really fun. I don't know Greek, but I read people that do know Greek, and this is a true thing. This, is, this actually is happening. Where the disciple was in location to Jesus is exactly where Jesus was in relation to God, according to John. Check this out. John one eighteen. No one, it says in John one eighteen, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. This is NIV. So what John is saying is that no one has ever, no one has ever seen God, but the son who is like so close to God makes the father known. Look, look, by the way, this is this, the same wording is the same wording that John uses to describe leaning up against Jesus. Look at them side by side. And I'm going to read from the Old King James. By the way, does anyone still read the Old King James here? Oh, my gosh, a lot of you. Three or something. That's awesome. <laughs> F- first gathering, zero. Absol- oh, half a person. He said kind of sometimes. But three, that's good. Okay, Old King James. This is what Old King James says. It captures it better. You can see in parallel. There are both of them on the screen. John 1.18 and John 13.23. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. What John is saying at the very beginning is that Jesus is in the heart, the the chest, the bosom of the Father. But look what John 13, 23 says. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom he loved. In the Greek, this is the exact same wording. Where Jesus was in relation to the Father is the exact same place John is. Where's John? In the bosom of Jesus. Where was Jesus? In the bosom of the Father. This is like the exact same word, meaning that the disciple is as intimate with Jesus as Jesus is with the Father. Or, if that's too strong for you, you're like, whoa, you can't say that. Maybe I can't, but maybe this then, if not that, at least this. John is at least saying that this this disciple relates to Jesus as Jesus relates to the Father in close intimacy. And the implications of that for me as a pastor and for you as followers of Jesus is that the only way that we make Jesus known is by being intimate with Jesus. The way that Jesus makes the Father known is because Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. And what John is saying, I think what John is doing here is he's dropping some hints here. He's like, you know why I can write about who Jesus is? Because I was in the bosom of Jesus. You know how Jesus can make the Father known? He was in the bosom of the Father. You know how I can write about Jesus? I was there too. I was right there, like in the bosom of Jesus. I can, I can actually tell you what Jesus is like because I was right there. I think that's kind of what's going on here as well. So, the implications of this mean intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance. Intimacy with Jesus means that we can make Jesus known because we know Jesus, because we're close to Him, meaning we can make Jesus known because we know Christ. Now, as I close here, I want to get practical. I want to get very practical so you know what this requires. What does this look like? Okay, um, maybe you might be with me. You're like, I want this sort of leaning back on Jesus, the thing in my life. What does that look like? So let me try to get practical in three ways, okay? So what does it require? Three things, I think, just, just, just personal reflection. First, it requires you have to show up. You have to show up to God. You have to show up to prayer. It must be a regular part of the rhythm of your life. You've probably heard this so many, said so many different ways, and I'm here to testify all the way from California that it is true. (laughs) You must show up, and you must show up regularly to God. Ron Roheiser writes this, there is no bad way to pray, and there is no one starting point for prayer, all the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. He say, he's saying there's no better way to pray, meaning you can, you can pray sitting down. You can pray standing up. You can pray on your knees. You can pray out loud in your head with worship music playing or in silence on a walk in your, or in your bed, it, there's, there's, but there's only one non-negotiable rule. You can pray anywhere and any different way you want to, but there's only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up, and you have to show up regularly. See, I have clinically off-the-charts ADD, like, honestly, clinically off-the-charts ADD. I'm so distracted by everything, even, like, pre-service prayer, everyone prays at the same time. I can't pray, because I'm like, what are you saying? Who's that? Who's saying this? Who's saying that? Like, I just can't. I'm so distracted by so many people praying at the same time. I'm like, Lord, Lord, what? Uh, yeah, that. That, too. Like, I'm just so distracted. <laughs> I'm distracted right now even thinking about being distracted from that. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But I'm so ADD, I just can't do it. I can't, I can't get out words. I go, and I just start praying what other people are saying, and it just makes no sense at all. I'm distracted in the mornings by the thought of being distracted and what I would do if I got distracted. <laughs> That's honest truth, okay? So, what, what, what do I do? I, 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 I must, I must show up regularly, and I must remove all distractions. I have to. I have to remove every last, every last distraction, and I have to do this regularly. When I was journaling at the beginning of my sabbatical, I said, you know, the, the biggest deterrent for me in my prayer life, I love praying. I get really into it when I pray. I feel really connected to God when I pray, but it's regularity, and so for me, it was the discipline of showing up regularly. Have you ever seen that movie, uh, 50 First Dates? Classic Adam Sandler movie, classic. Drew Barrymore, so good. Um, in the movie, Drew Barrymore has short-term memory loss and she can't remember one day to the next and she can't remember new people she meets and every time she falls asleep, she wakes up and her memory's gone. She meets Adam Sandler's character, falls in love, but has to fall in love every day, blah, 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 blah. Basically, the movie, the only way she can cope with life is that she watches like, this video every day that catches her up on who she is at right now. She remembers, she, has, she doesn't remember anything, so she has, to, she has to wake up and like the details of her life have to be brought before her every single morning. And on my sabbatical, I realized that I think I'm like Drew Barrymore. Like, not that I fell in love with Adam Sandler, but I, <laughs> I, I go to sleep no matter how good my day was the day before in Jesus, I literally forget it by the next day. I go, I wake up and I go, who am I? What, ha- and what prayer does is, like, re-centers me. What prayer does is, like, who am I? Oh, yeah, I- I'm a child of God. Oh, oh, yeah, God saved me. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this, this is who I am. I- I- I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. This is who I am in my city. This is, who-. like, I have to remember who Jesus is and who I am every single day, and it's almost, I don't even know why this is, but, and I hope it changes eventually, but every morning I wake up, and I'm, like, I don't even know who I am, and I have to remind myself every day, and for me, Here's how I know I've leaned back. Every day, I've, I ask myself um, I ask myself two questions and then a bonus question. Okay, so two questions, and then I throw in a bonus question. And bonus question is like, bonus, right? Maybe I get it. Most of the time I don't, but it's a bonus round. My, my first two questions are this. This is how I know, have I leaned back today? Was my heart warmed in my intimacy with God? Was my heart warmed? Meaning, was, that, was my heart calmed? Did my blood pressure go down? Did the the pace and the pressure of my my heart match Jesus' pace and the pressure blood pressure of his heart? I ask myself, was my heart warmed? The second question I ask myself is, was my identity recalled? Do I know who God is and who I am in God's big world? Those are like the two questions. I, I I don't leave intimacy with God until those things are answered. But the bonus question is, was my life directed? Was there... Do I know how I'm entering into my day today? Do I know exactly where I'm going? That's a bonus question, because not every day. I don't get there every single day. Some days I'm like, I know exactly how I'm, I must show up to the world, what I'm supposed to do, all these things. God might give, me, might give me a word for someone. I might have, like, this vision or direction. But some days I just, that's a bonus question. But those three things was my heart warmed, my identity recalled, my life directed. Second thing, you must put away distraction. Guys, we are so... Overstimulated and over-distracted in our, in this world. I know most of it is basically the, where the city I'm from. It's their fault. I get that. But the image, can you imagine this, like, John, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning back against Jesus, like, today, and what, like, if you just spun it modern, like, if he was leaning back against Jesus, and they're having this intimate moment, and then his phone starts blowing up in his pocket. Can you imagine this, like, and it's just buzzing, and Jesus is like, she going to get that? Like, it's just, it's just ruined every, and every, everyone's distracted by this thing. Like, you can't, you can't have this intimate moment, and then he's, like, checking his, like, news feed. It's just, it's not possible. Um, one of the things I did on my sabbatical was, um, I got rid of my phone, got a burner phone for the, for my sabbatical, and, uh, um, like, you know, changed my number, and uh, totally Breaking Bad, all this other stuff, and, um, <laughs> And I didn't have like, Safari on my phone, there's no, no interwebs, and, um, and so I, I, uh, I no social media, all that stuff, whatever. And we would be, you know how when you're in conversation with someone and a random fact slips your mind you don't know, and then someone goes, oh, and then they grab their phone and they look it up, but then they're distracted by eight mi- for eight minutes, because all these notifications, and then this thing leads to a BuzzFeed article, which leads to a survey, which leads to a thing, you know, that sort of thing happens. Um, what well, I, I would practice this idea of, like, not knowing, so, so something would happen, like, wait, who is that actor in? And I, and I would turn to my wife, and she was sick of it by the end of sabbatical. I'm like, hey, let's just not know. Let's just sit <laughs> into the space where you don't know. What does that feel like in your body when you don't know, and you can't know what it is? And so what you do is you kind of, like, meet new people, and you ask them the thing that you don't know. Do you know this? You're like, I don't know. You're like, let's not know. (laughs) Like, I, and I literally went through with a few questions throughout my sabbatical, not letting anyone look it up. No, you can't look it up on your phone. Let's just not know. Like, one of the big ones was um, why I've not ever seen a baby pigeon. (laughs) Like, why haven't, I mean, we live in cities that where pigeons are everywhere. I've seen baby everythings, but never a baby pigeon. And so I would ask people, I'm like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? They're like, no, no. Why haven't I seen it? I'm like, I know. I don't know. And they would grab their phone, I'm like, no, 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 no. no, no. Let's just not know. And I, I, I really respect pigeons that they can keep secrets like this, right? You're like, because I hate, I hate pigeons, hate them. But now I have respect for them. I'm like, yeah, you know how to keep a secret. Like, you know. Barely the internet knows that you have babies, but, but somehow there's millions of you everywhere, and we've never seen your kids, so you're... <laughs> but this, our culture is like a super powerful narcotic for good and bad. Narcotics can be good. Narcotics protect us from raw pain, and our culture has within it the very kind of thing, that, this very kind of thing like medicine to entertainment to shield us from suffering. And some of that's really, really good. There's some things we enter into, and we need medicine, and we need entertainment to shield us from raw pain. That can be good, but narcotics can also be bad because especially they become bad when it becomes a way of escaping reality. And I think this is our relationship with our phone today. Our cultural narcotics shield us from having to face deeper issues of faith and forgiveness and morality and even mortality Things like our phones and entertainment can be set against the interior life, keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted that we lose focus on deeper things. And the thing is this. There's all this study coming out of Silicon Valley. They know this is happening. They keep it from their kids. They don't want their kids on it, but they sell it to you and to me, and they want you and me addicted, but they don't want their kids addicted because they know how bad it is. And they know this stuff. They know it. I know they know it. They tell me they know it, but they still want the world distracted. What has been created in the tech industry has made our lives wonderfully efficient, and I believe it's also conspired against depth in our own souls. We have become so attentive to so many things that we aren't attentive to anything, particularly what's deepest inside of us. So, if you're to show up to God and lean back, you must put away distraction. What this means is you might have to turn your phone off and your computer away in any way to be distracted and go, God, there's no one that can get a hold of me right now. I'm completely yours. Or I'm completely left to my own thoughts. And there's a whole detox process that has to happen there as well sometimes. Lastly, you need to let go. And I know this might be esoteric or maybe even a little cliche, but this is really important. See, I know there's a lot of visionary leaders in Portland and in this church Many of you can see a future life or a future world and order your world to make that world happen. There are many in here who know how to take objects and numbers and code and materials and relationships and opportunities, or even whole companies and bring them under your own agenda of shaping the world according to your own desires and purposes, and some of those purposes are godly and good. And when you go to God, In the same way you attempt to order your world, you attempt to use God to produce your own transformation and try to manipulate God to bring about the changes you decided you think you need. So you go to God, you're like, God, I think I need this right now, and I need you to do this for me. And God's just not on that track. And sometimes what we really need to do is release control of our relationship with God to God. And invite God, God, what are you doing right now in my life that I can just say yes and amen to and get on board with, even though I might want to tackle this other thing right now or grow in this other area, but you have me here in this area. And what this, what this needs, the, I think the, 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 the way that you and I enter into this space, and I'm saying this as an extrovert, so I'm not saying this as your pastor is an introvert and says this a lot, and I, I believe him, And I also believe that when introverts say this, we kind of like, well, you're an introvert. Of course, you're going to have to say that. This takes being alone. Now, introverts love saying, you be alone with God, because you're like, well, of course, you're introverted. You want to be alone all the time. But as an extrovert, I'll tell you, I don't like being alone. My idea of being alone is being in a coffee shop where I don't know anyone. Like, that's being alone, right? I'm surrounded with people, but I'm alone but this, that's, that's the extroverted me, and I will say this, you must, when I, see, when I say alone, you need to be alone alone, like be alone, by yourself, with no distractions, and what you might find, especially if you're extroverted, but even if you're not, because we're all so connected now, you're going to come, you're going to have a detox moment, when you're alone, and there's nothing going on in your life, and then all the stuff that you've been burying down because you've been on news feeds and Instagram feeds and text messages and with people all the time and living in a city where you see people all the time, all the stuff that you've been pushing down comes up, and God's like, this is the stuff I really want to deal with. Do you want to deal with this stuff now? And you're like, no, I, I like to keep that like, shoved down this, this way. But when you're alone, it comes up, and God's like, okay, give up your control. This is the stuff I want to deal with. And we need this, guys. We need this. One of the things I read, uh, a book that actually John Mark gave me, this uh, told me to read during my sabbatical by, um, called An Invitation to Journey. And he says this in this book, and John Mark might have even have already quoted this before. He says, The practice of silence is the radical reversal of our culture, cultural tendency. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing, our, relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. This, he says this is the point of Silence. I said, you don't have any control of even your relationship with God. You're like, this is stuff, God, I have these prayer requests I want to bring before you. And when you're silent, God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to deal with the stuff that you've been shoving down by being preoccupied and distracted for the last year. I want to deal with that stuff. Silence is the reversal of the whole possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. And then I read this book on leadership that I had on my shelf for like six years. And in there, it said this during my sabbatical. Ruth Haley Barton, she said, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we are vulnerable to a kind of leadership that is driven by profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. What she is saying is this. Those of you that are type one, type A, leadership sort of people that can make stuff happen. What happens is when you're alone for like a half a second, you get inspired, and then you go do the thing that you were silent, that like, you thought God told you to do. And you go make stuff happen, right? You're like, Lord, and oh, I got it, Lord. And then you go and you start sending off text messages, emails, drafting the whiteboard. Like, this is how it's going to work. This is what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing. And you get people on board. You get everyone excited about your vision. And Ruth Haley Barton would say those type of leaders are in danger of when you don't spend solid time alone with God, you, you're, you're actually just masking the things that God's wanted to do with, like, your vision, What you need to do is you need to be silent long enough so that the interior of your world can be like terraformed toward to God. So God can deal with that stuff of you thinking that you're fixing the world, and God's not, he he knows what he's doing with the world. He's not anxious like you're anxious. He wants to work on your inner world, and silence gets there. See, maybe Judas was following Jesus to try and control Jesus, Maybe Judas was driven by such a profound emptiness that when he started to realize Jesus wouldn't bend to his will, he decided to get rid of him. But the enduring picture of discipleship is leaning back on Jesus, showing up without distraction, letting go of control of whatever happens to Jesus. And I know our world has been like insane the last few years, but I'll tell you, the only way to to get true perspective of what's going on and have the capacity to do something about it it's from this place of leaning back on Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray?